Good morning. We want to welcome all of you and we want to welcome all of our online listeners to class today. My name is Lori Atkins. I'm substituting for Tim today. Let's begin class with prayer. Father, we, uh, we know you've promised that when we're gathered together, you would be in our midst, but we want to specifically invite you here today. We invite your presence. We invite your spirit to enlighten our minds, to uh, open our hearts to truth about your character. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today uh, we're studying lesson eight in the, this quarterly, the gospel in Galatians. And the title of this week's lesson is From Slaves to Heirs. These are opposite ends of the spectrum, at least from a social class perspective, from a servant, a peasant, all the way up to the eldest son, the heir to the estate. Um, And this lesson title obviously is based on the memory text, which is Galatians 4-7. It reads, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what does it mean, you think, to say that we are no longer slaves? Slaves to what? Oh, I forgot to mention, it's participation day. (laughs) Just FYI, there's no trophies. We won't be giving away participation trophies, but the class is so much more alive and dynamic when we have lots of different viewpoints and uh, opinions coming from the class. I'm counting on you for that. So we're no longer slaves. Slaves to what? To sin. Does that mean we're slaves to our sinful behaviors, our bad acts, maybe addictions? Or are we no longer slaves to our sinful condition, the condition we were born with through no fault of our own? To me, we're not slaves to impose law anymore. Correct. I mean, we're going to talk more about the liberation of a slave and how these concepts, to me, are some of the most liberating I've ever learned in my life. Okay, so if we're not, no longer slaves, we're heirs. What do we inherit? We're going to talk more about that. We'll try to get some clarity and answer some of these questions as we go through this week's lesson. So Saturday's lesson talks a little bit about a young Martin Luther's experience. By seeking to try to obtain pardon for sin and peace through his own works, he led a most rigorous life, endeavoring by fasting, vigils, and scourgings to subdue the evils of his nature. But even this monastic life brought no relief. He shrank from no sacrifice by which he might attain a purity of heart that would enable him to stand approved before God. He called himself a, quote, pious monk who strictly followed the rules of his order and yet found no peace within them. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. But this strategy didn't work for him. And it still doesn't work for anyone. Does this mindset of Luther ring true for anyone else? I mean, I remember growing up, this, I was not scourged, at least not voluntarily. <laughs> we may have paid lip service to salvation by faith. 
but there was always an underlying thread running through that obeying the rules and our behavioral performance was pretty critical. The works had to at least on the outside look good. And this does sound a bit like slavery to me. It felt a bit like slavery to me. And I, th- I think it's why many of my classmates and people our age are no longer in the church. Because they wanted to break free from that. I remember when I brought my children up when I come into the Adventist church, so many of the things that they weren't allowed to do anymore. Mm-hmm. Because we were told it would cost them their salvation. They went from listening to rock and roll music, watching what we watched on TV, because I didn't have a church life. Right. To absolutely not allowed to do anything. Couldn't even play in sports at one point in their life because I was around a lot of Adventists who said playing sports was competition. Yeah. They could not be competitive. They couldn't listen to the music that they were listening to when they were in gymnastics. And I mean, my kids are grown adults now, but it's had a bad effect on them. A really bad effect on them. We can relate. So apparently the Galatians were experiencing some similar struggles to Martin Luther. And Paul talks about it in chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 1 through 5. This is from the remedy. Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified and as the only remedy for our sin-infected minds. I would like to know just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit of love and truth and experience his healing power by practicing rituals and observing rules, or was it by understanding and believing the truth that you heard? Are you really so foolish that you think that after experiencing the healing power of the spirit, which came by trust alone, you can now complete the healing process by your own effort without the spirit? Have you really gone so far in the treatment course for nothing? And it will be for nothing if you persist in trying to heal yourselves. Is it because you observe a set of rules that God enlightens your minds with his spirit and miraculously transform your characters? Or is it because you have been one to trust by the evidence that Jesus revealed? This is telling us the the rules, the rituals, the practices... That's not the way. That's not the method. That's not the way to enlighten your mind and open your heart. But the Galatians also thought that practicing rituals and observing a set of rules and relying on their own efforts could complete their healing and transform their characters. For Luther, only when he began to understand the truth about salvation in Christ did he ever start to have any kind of spiritual freedom and hope for his own soul. And based on my understanding now... Although his protests advanced truth from where he started, for sure, there was still more truth to be discovered. Because they still held to the view that God's law is imposed. God's law is imposed. And here's a spoiler alert. There's still more truth to be discovered. Right now, today. And there always will be more truth to uncover throughout eternity. God's, the knowledge of God's true character of love, along with the knowledge that his laws are natural design laws, and the fact that he does not govern his universe in the same way humans do, thank God, these are some of the most freeing and liberating concepts I have learned in this class. 
Truly you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here's the memory text from the remedy paraphrase. It says, Rejoice! You are no longer childlike, needing the supervision of a slave, but are adult children, wise and mature, and as mature children, heirs with Christ of all that is promised. So what is promised? What have we been told about our inheritance? Anything? The meek will inherit. We shall be like him and be with him. Yes. That's a promise. What what will the meek inherit, did Christ say? The earth. And not this earth. The new cool earth. We're also told we're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom prepared for us since the creation of the world. We're also told we'll inherit eternal life. And this is not like an inheritance on this earth. It's not like when you have an older brother who like gets everything <laughs> and then there's not much left when you come along. I don't know what that would be like, but I can imagine. Everybody gets everything. That's how this inheritance works. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. It's titled, Our Condition in Christ. The quarterly asks us to keep Galatians 3.25 in mind, and then asks, how does Galatians 3.26 help us understand what our relationship to the law is now that we have been, quote, redeemed by Jesus? I'm wondering if someone would read Galatians 3.25 through 27 for us. Loud and clear. 325 through 27. But after that, faith has come. We are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Did you want me to stop at 27? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to read it from the remedy. Now that trust in God has been restored, and we are set right in heart, mind, and character, and again practice God's methods, we no longer need the law to diagnose our condition or lead us back to God. Through the remedy established by Jesus Christ, you are all loyal children of God. For all of you who have immersed your minds and hearts into the truth of God, as revealed by Christ, have had your characters changed and left a new set of clothing replaced with the character of Christ. Thank you. And wow, the quarterly compares a master's son being under a pedagogue while he was a minor. Did anyone else have to look up the word pedagogue? Is that just me? I did. And Google defines it as a teacher, especially a strict or pedantic one. And pedagogy is a thing. Who knew? Anyway, the quarterly is comparing this minor child under a pedagogue to an immature Christian or an unbeliever and then says that their relationship with the law is changed because they are now adult sons of God. What are your thoughts on that? Does our relationship with the law change as we mature? Which law? And of course, the first question is, which law? (laughs) So... An example we've used in this class, 
frequently, if our parents have a law that we must brush our teeth, does our relationship with that law change as we grow up and mature into adults? Why is that? Because if you do not brush your teeth, whether you are old, there are consequences. So it does not change. And when you, if you do not brush your teeth when you're young, there are consequences, but they might be different. <laughs> I think we grow into individuality. Yes. We grow up and mature. And if, if you haven't studied the seven levels of moral development, I encourage you to go on CommonReason.com and find that literature and study those. Because literally at children's age, you are at levels one, two, three, and you are brushing your teeth in order to avoid punishment or to get a reward, because that's, that's what your parents have promised. But as you grow up and you mature and you take physics in college and you start to understand whatever law that is, third, fifth, second law of thermodynamics, that things tend toward decay without an energy source, you start to understand why your parents had that rule. And then it wasn't because they were mad at you or wanted to impose a ritual on you. It's because they were trying to save your teeth. Yes, Wendell. I'm sure that many dentists have the same sign that a correct dentist has that says, brush the teeth you want to keep. Yes, exactly. Is it the relationship to the law that's changed or is it the relationship to the lawgiver? Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yes. So it's both. I think it's both. And when you rise up to levels six and seven in moral development, seven is called an understanding friend of God. So yes, I think your relationship to the lawgiver changes because you get to know him and you understand why he does these and you understand his principles and his methods and the way he works, which then that is put into the law that he gave and you understand it's all for your good. And note that the law of physics don't change, but our relationship and our understanding <coughs> of them changes as we mature, if we mature. Exactly. And we talked about that. I mean, he and Tim have both stolen some of my stuff because we're studying the book of Galatians and there's some repetition, but sometimes that's required for learning. But we talked about, I think Tim did, did the laws of physics, the laws of gravity exist before Newton and... Einstein, or before they discovered them, before they put them into words and wrote them down, they still existed. We may not have known or given a name to them, but they existed. Same with his law of love, his law that runs the universe, that life is designed to operate. It's always existed. We, just, we may not have had words for it, or we had the wrong words for it. Yes? Sometimes the portrayal of God's rejection of his children or his children going to captivity or whatever else is looked like a change in God. Right. If you, if you examine God as being a God of love and that he's always doing what's best, then for him to continue to listen and to respond in the same way would not be loving. It would not be love. Mm -hmm. If he... If your response to his guidelines of law, how things were made, changes, 
then the response is going to change. Right. Not because he's changed, but because we have changed in our relationship to how things were designed. Well said. So is there significance? What is the significance of Paul using the word sons instead of the more generic term children in this passage? I think obviously in that... That's, that's obvious. Well, yeah. It's, <laughs> they, they must have been being ordained. Yeah. Um, in that time and culture, obviously, the family inheritance was passed on to the male offspring. Also, the... The oldest son who got preference. For sure. I'm familiar. <laughs> The phrase. Some things are stay the same. Yes. The phrase "sons of God" also had special meaning, and it was the specific designation of Israel in the Old Testament. And Paul wanted to highlight that in Christ, the Gentiles, which now included everyone, all nations, kindred, tongue, and people now enjoy the same special relationship with God that had previously been somewhat exclusive to Israel. So also in Sunday's lesson, it talks about baptism. And it asks the question, what is it about baptism that makes it such a significant event? Do we think it's that the right words were said? Father, Son, Holy Spirit? (laughs) Is it a depth of the water? size of the tank, whether they were dunked or sprinkled, which denomination they were baptized into? Is it whether the baptizee has accepted and agreed to the appropriate creed or doctrines or set of fundamental beliefs? Is that the significance of baptism? I see no's. So I have a couple of texts that speak to maybe why baptism is a significant event. This one's from Galatians 3, verses 27 through 29. For all of you who have immersed your minds and hearts into the truth of God, as revealed by Christ, have had your characters changed, and, like a new set of clothing, replaced with the character of Christ. Your station on earth is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in character, method, principle, and motive through all that Christ has done. If you are Christ-like in heart and mind, then you are one of Abraham's descendants and an heir to all the promises of God. So this is saying that you're immersing your heart and mind into the truth about God as revealed by Christ. That sounds significant. Romans 6, 3 through 5 says, Or don't you realize that all of us who were immersed into union with Christ Jesus were immersed into selflessness and have died to self-centeredness? We symbolically demonstrate that we have joined him in dying to self by being buried in water in order that Just as Jesus rose from the dead, displaying the life-giving glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, displaying God's glorious character. If we have joined him in dying to self, we will absolutely join him in his resurrection and the new life. So that sounds significant. 
First Peter three twenty one and twenty two says, "The flood is symbolic of baptism, just as those who responded to the Spirit in Noah's day and went through the water safely in the ark to a new life. Those who follow the Spirit go through baptism to a new life in Christ today. This doesn't wash away dirt from the body, but it symbolizes the Spirit's cleansing of the conscience from fear and selfishness." You are healed by the life of Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and is in heaven at God's right hand, directing the Spirit to take His perfect character and reproduce it in you. All heavenly intelligences recognize Him as worthy and sovereign, and He is directing all the agencies of heaven for your healing. Wow. Yes. So are we looking forward to the resurrection or are we experiencing the resurrection? Question. Here. What do you think? She asks, are we looking forward to the resurrection or are we actually experiencing a resurrection right here and now? I think that's a great question. I hope we're experiencing. Let me speak for myself. Yes, please. I am experiencing the resurrection and hopefully I don't know what will happen next. <laughs> Does anyone else find that true? Is anybody else that's been through that real conversion experience and sees things in themselves now that were not there before or that were dead and are now alive? Harmonizing with John 17:3. Yes. Is life eternal currently. Perfect present tense. And I like to say the resurrection is in my DNA right now. Yes. Right now. Ooh, that gave me chills. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> yes. And I always, when Christ talks about the kingdom of heaven, eternal life, he talks about it in the present sense. The kingdom is within you. It's not to come. It's now. If we understand what the kingdom of heaven is. So there, there is a Frank Matera quote in the third paragraph in Sunday's lesson that says, Paul's views, Paul views baptism as the moment when Christ, like a garment, envelops the believer. Although he does not employ the term, Paul is describing the righteousness which is conferred upon believers. What do you think about that? What do you think about for me, what I know now versus what I was taught that this covering or this envelopment is, is it simply a legal transaction or is it a declaration of something that's not actually true? Or does this garment envelop the believer? Is this righteousness conferred upon believers because an actual change has taken place? Because a heart that was at enmity toward God has been transformed to a heart that trusts God and has been set right. So one of the founders of our church describes this covering garment or the robe like this. Only the covering which Christ himself has provided can make us meet to appear in God's presence. This covering, the robe of his own righteousness, Christ will put upon every repenting, believing soul. This robe woven in the loom of heaven 
has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ, in his humanity, wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. It's in our DNA. Sin is defined to be the transgression of the law. But Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. Which law? (laughs) What are the requirements of the law? We're going to talk about that. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him, and we live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. That's not just a water dunking. That's not what I was taught baptism meant. That's not what I was taught being clothed in the robe of righteousness meant. So the pink box at the bottom of Sunday's lesson says, dwell on the thought that what is true of Christ is also true of us. How should this amazing truth affect every aspect of our existence? Yes, Rachel. I'd like to ask a practical question. Please. On the class of how they have experienced this new heart. And I'm going to tie this into physical therapy. And and I may do this badly, but... I've been in physical therapy for my back, and the the therapist explained that as I did the exercises, the muscle tissue and the bone tissue, as it grew in a new way, Mm. actually have the healing, which I've now experienced from doing the exercises, but it was a period of time. Yes. And when I think about in my own life, uh, my selfishness, my temper, uh, my appetite, things that God has given me victory over. Yes. It was not instantaneous, but my desire was close to instantaneous, although I sometimes went backward, right? <laughs> but um, as I repented and submitted that to Christ, there was a healing, but it was not instantaneous. Right. I would just like to hear what other people in the class have experienced in the experience of the new heart, because I don't think we talk about this. I think right. Theoretically, yes. What does it mean practically? I would like to hear that as well. Wendell. I'm not a physical therapist, <laughs> um, but I would like to sit, kind of go further in that analogy in the sense that if all that you do is go to the physical therapy office and have someone do something to you, right. you will not be transformed. Yeah, my therapist had to tell me, if you do it eight times a day, it won't work any better than four times a day. It's okay to do it only four times a day. <laughs> <laughs> you had to at least do it. Oh, I did. Otherwise, you will not be transformed. Right. It's by, beco- by beholding, we become changed. Yes. And it's an ongoing beholding. It's not that we go once a week and we behold and go away. Is by continually beholding we are changed. And and it's something that is transformed within us, not as placed on the outside of us, right. going in and getting modalities or whatever they call them. You know, 
it's by actually being changed, you know. And so I think that is a good analogy in that we actually do become well in spiritual sense because of what Christ is doing in our lives. Right. And in areas that were our greatest temptations can become our greatest strengths. That's yes. what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And our greatest testimonies. Bother us. In fact, we have, we, then we have to be careful of being judgmental about other people who are victorious. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, let me unpack that a little more yeah. for you. You, yeah. you. you went to a therapist and developed a trust in the therapist that they knew what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. You exercised your will in accordance with the law of freedom and liberty to to do what the therapist asked you to do in accordance with the law of exertion you exerted your core muscles and and strengthened ligament tendon and tissue and increased the resting tone of your core muscles in accordance with design law and lo and behold we we reduced the stresses on whatever tissue was was aggravating you whether it was disc or ligament or muscle or facet joint or whatever it was and you brought it into harmony with the with the specific the design specifications of that tissue, mm-hmm. and our God giving heal your God giving healing capacities took over. I mean, I, everything you've described is is in accordance with design law. Mm-hmm. And, so and, I, and, I, and I, I like spiritual this. application. I don't know if you absolutely can, people can do absolutely. this personally, but I think um, I'd like to hear people's personal victories. I, mm-hmm. I, if anybody would like to well, share that, thanks. Well. I don't know if it's age or if it's if it's truly growing in Christ, but you know something happened in our office, and one of our younger members of our uh, providers um, had become quite upset with something that was happening and whatnot, and and responded, and and the staff said, "Please go and talk to him, you know, because you you don't act that way," and I said, "Well." I have to tell you about a younger orthopedic surgeon who early in his practice called the cops on the ambulance driver who brought a patient to their office. And so I have to realize that we do grow in grace, that God does provide victory in some of our natural inherited traits and the things that we have generated and created in ourselves. God does provide victory. Yeah, Rachel, I can tell you from my personal experience that entertainment choices that I used to uh, find either amusing or um, sensual or, or whatever are now distasteful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like a former smoker. Yeah, yes. exactly. Okay, yeah, well, good analogy. This you know, is how the, I feel the, about the, my former sin. The I smell of cigarette smoke it would be repugnant now. You know, yeah. some, of, some of the entertainment choices that I that I used to indulge in 15 so years ago or are now nauseating you what was i thinking mm-hmm. um you know there's a whole laundry list of, so of things that have evolved let's, let's over a period of time process, because i think people are mystified by this they're baptized and they think okay now i'm not going to have these problems anymore and it's not that simple right it hasn't been for me no not at all I mean, and again back to your therapy and your your mm-hmm. spine analogy you had to employ your will. You had to get your tissue in, in accordance with design specifications. You had to do it in, in, a, in an atmosphere of freedom. None of that is instantaneous. It, it, it takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes it takes a will. And I think, Rachel, some of the reason, or a lot of the reason, people tend to be mystified by it is because they are taught the penal, legal, mm-hmm. 
model and this solution that has no power. A human is not instantaneous generally. Correct. It's not. I mean, we've talked about the example of someone with pneumonia who has all the symptoms, fever, coughing, nausea, vomiting. The moment they start on antibiotics, the, the scripture tells us we have turned from the path of death to the path of life. That doesn't mean we're free of pneumonia immediately. In fact, we may cough up uglier stuff than we've ever seen before on our path to healing. But the, the healing is taking place as long as we're taking the remedy. Yes, Peggy. Well, something has happened to me that in a way was surprising. I used to be able to like ride down the road and see an animal, you know, that had been hurt or something and dead and just go on by because this is what happened here. And uh, last week I rode by a deer that had been hit. It was dead. And I just felt so sick inside, you know. And then I got to thinking, how must God feel Mm -hmm. if that made me feel so bad? Right. And it came as a surprise that I actually felt nauseated, sick, weak because of this poor animal that had been destroyed. Later, somebody did come and get it off the road. Mm -hmm. But uh, I felt so sad. And often when these things happen, I do think... God, if I feel this little bit of right, how must you feel to see all this creation yes. doing groaning yeah. under the weight? But it was a surprise to me that I felt that bad that yes. day to see that animal. And how many of us can can feel bad about seeing a, a raccoon be killed or a dead a dead deer, and watch a television movie where a guy gets shot and it's, it's inconsequential? Right. Nothing. And it should bother us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it should be it should should be obnoxious. It should create a just significant cognitive dissonance for us. But it's yeah, well, he's a crook. He deserved it. Teresa had a comment. My definition of love has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself every time because I've had quite the anger problem. I have I find myself going back to First Corinthians thirteen a lot. I love the way Tim puts it in the remedy. My definition of love in a relationship and a marriage has changed. I've been divorced twice, and my marriages were not based on love the way I see it now. Right. It was based on making my husband love me, mm-hmm. doing whatever I can to get him yeah. to do so. Now my outlook on love is way different. It's an action. It's an action. It's not a feeling. You're going to get mad. Right. You're going to be angry. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be all these things. But the bottom line is love is an action. It's not a feeling. Well, and you and I were talking before class. When I think about just the learning process, and again, as Rachel said, this is not immediate. I'm talking about over the course of a decade, over 10 years, learning about natural law, design law, the way it works, the way it's so predictable that we think differently. Our minds now work differently because of what we know and of what we've learned. Wish I knew it a long time ago in relationships. Change this. Yes. And I'm finding out I can't change anybody but myself. Right. So now the way I love my son or my daughter or my husband sometimes takes a lot 
Yes. To step back and let them and do what's best for him. And love right. Him and pray for them. The action of prayer. And yeah. Reading my Bible to remember what love is, not to be rude, not to be obnoxious, not to be selfish, not to keep a record of wrongs. Yes, I have to look at myself. And yeah. So you had a comment in the back. You mentioned about the kingdom of God is promised to us. We are to inherit it. And I know in Matthew eight twenty-five it does say that you know. The kingdom of God prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. Come and inherit it. It's yours. Come receive it. Yeah. And it describes the people who received as, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And so we always, before, looked at it and said, you have to do these things. Help the poor, feed the hungry, so you can earn the kingdom of heaven. Because it describes it, you know, I was in prison, you visited me, I was sick, you took care of me. And therefore, if you do these things, you will be fit for heaven. Right. Uh, but now I see it differently in that once you accept God's remedy and you, you changes your heart, you're going to want to do these things. Exactly. Because it becomes part of you and it's part of nature. And you want to do them from the right motives. Because he also says he meets people at the end of time that say, I, we did all of these things in your name. And he says, I never knew you. So like, right. I mean, you know, these things will come natural, but to begin with, you may not feel like it. Mm -hmm. But you may have to start doing it even if you don't feel Correct. Like it, until it becomes part of your Correct. And I think that's part of the explanation of how our relationship with the law of love changes as we grow and mature. Um, 30 years ago, I would never, ever, on a Friday evening, go into another church. Even though my church was miles and miles away. Right. And they were having something, they were praising God. Yeah. Since my understanding has changed, and when I say I go to every church, people look at me. <laughs> but I literally go to every church because I'm on a mission. Yes. And the mission took me here to my brother who needs faith, mm -hmm. who has no confidence at all in any church. And so yesterday evening, as a matter of fact, where he lives, the folks, somebody said something to him. And so he doesn't come outside at all unless he goes into his car. So yesterday evening, or Wednesday, I, walked, I said, I'm going to walk. I have to walk. I cannot stay in this place. I'm not used to it. So I walked in the cul-de-sac. And when I came back, I said, that's not enough. <laughs> I'm used to walking two, three, four miles. Mm -hmm. So I walked up the road. And there was a church. I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> I have a reason to get out of the house. Yeah. So I won't offend him. Because he's very happy to know that I, I, will, I will go to the, out of the house, but he doesn't want me to go out of the house. But when I say I'm going to church, fine. So I said, thank you, Jesus. So I walked over to the church, and there was a young lady ready to greet me. And she spoke in the other. And so from that day until now, I'm going over to the church. Yeah, last night, we had such a wonderful fellowship with these folks. First time in my life I've ever seen them. Mm -hmm. And I had such a beautiful Sabbath. And I look forward to going with them. And also 
for them to be praying for, with me, right? Right. Living five minutes away, yeah. And who needs faith in God and to get himself straightened? So you're saying that denomination is not the key. Hmm. Interesting. Right behind you had a comment. Yep. Before uh, design law, um, when I would struggle with a temptation, you would pray, God forgive me, and you'd wait for God to intervene. Right. And nothing would really happen. <clears throat> so then after design law, you start realizing, wait a second, what I'm doing has a concept. It, it doesn't necessarily affect God, really. Right. Because it affects me. Yes. And it's my responsibility to, with the help of God, to right. figure out how to stop that behavior or, or whatever. So then you start analyzing well, what's causing the behavior and you start down the steps of, 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 of learning how to, how to change. And, Agreed. And That's what we were talking about. We think differently now. I don't know. I, I call it more logical because much of what I learned growing up was illogical, what I learned about religion. But this, is, this permeates non-spiritual things. Natural design law is how reality works, all of reality, not just spiritual things. So it really does change the way you approach issues, relationships, problems, challenges. Totally different. Linda's next. I, I like the Bible verse. It gives me a picture of how this works when it says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, because I'm meek and lowly, and you'll find rest. Right. So if you think of what a yoke is, you have an experienced oxen or whatever, mm -hmm. one part of the yoke, and then you have a newbie on the other side, maybe, who's now, they're sharing the load, and the, the more experienced one is kind of showing the younger mm -hmm. one the way. Mentoring to, them. To do what, you know, what's expected, what needs to be done. Yes. In a spiritual sense, that, that I think is what has been my experience, is that when you come into link with the experienced mm -hmm. one, you know, he shows you bit by bit, even though you get off the trail, he kind of gets you back right. and so on. So that before, when I may have just thought, you know, had prayer and run on my merry way, <laughs> now I guess that what I experience is a desire to actually read the Bible. When I right. retired for six months, um, I found that reading the Bible almost became like reading a novel. If you mm -hmm. will. I mean, I could, I, I had to tell myself, you've got to stop it. Put it down. <laughs> you know, I mean, it became uh, fascinating. Yeah. I saw more in it. I saw more connections, and God was showing me more, and I liked that. Yeah. I enjoyed that, and that was not my experience before. And the more he showed, the more I was impressed right. by him and what he could do, and I wanted that and asked for that. And so it, it kind of led me on this trail of desire mm -hmm. him and following along with him. It's not me or just him. He's not just conferring righteousness on me. Right. He's actually showing me the way to righteousness and overcoming. That's a great analogy. You had a comment. Yes, ma'am. Um, my experience with uh, comes from, it's, it's a long experience, but I'll try to make it short. When I first became an Adventist at Tyler, I was first told Adventist people are caught. Stay away from them people the health thing and the eating thing and all this. But I was placed in a situation where I didn't have a, I had a choice, but I, I placed in a situation where I had to listen. 
and after listening and, and stop reading and start studying, mm-hmm. then I saw that the Adventist church, I'm saying church now, but at the time, at this time, it was church. Now I see it as just a building. Mm-hmm. We go to buildings. Mm-hmm. We're the people who go and we're the people who make up the church. That's right. Like now we're in a courthouse. People ask me where you go to church and I say in a courthouse. <laughs> That's awesome. They look at me like I'm crazy. But it makes sense that people are the church that assemble in the building to worship one God. Yeah. Denomination of faith, whatever, it doesn't matter. Doesn't. A title, that's, a, that's a title. And people hold titles that they don't deserve. Churches hold names that they don't deserve. Then I'm gonna say it. I know she don't want me to, but I'm gonna say it. I'm a, I'm in a situation where I went to a church and I was arrested because of law. Mm-hmm. Twenty five years ago, did or didn't commit a crime. Done time for it. Got out. Been out four years. I went to a church. An individual at that church knew of my crime. Called the police. I was arrested. Right now I'm facing seven years for going into a seven-day Adventist mm-hmm. church. That took me back from the beginning of saying, of people telling me, don't fool with that church. Those are cult members. They'll do this, they'll do that, they this and that. But I, right now I have to separate the individuals, and not just say the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church or the Seventh-day Adventist group of people. I have to look at it and separate. It's an individual thing. From wherever that person was who called the police and had me arrested, that's between him and God. Right. He's going to have to answer for that. <laughs> but I got faith in God as being not a Adventist, not a Baptist, not a Presbyterian, as being a Christian. A Christ-like, a child of God. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. That's who I am. I'm 1 Corinthians 5, 17. That's who I am. I'm not what whatever happened 20-something years ago. It's just a title. I mean, the law, do we obey a law, do we obey policy? Do we put a policy above a person's salvation? To me, we shouldn't. If the if a if and I give the example, if Paul walked into a Seventh Day Adventist church with their policies, would the church or the people in the church say, Paul, you used to kill people? Mm-hmm. We have to follow you around to make sure you don't do that, or we have to escort you to the water fountain to make sure you don't cut and kill nobody because we're all Christians in here. Right. We have to over, we have to do what Jesus does. That's what the word Christian means, to be Christ-like. Forget whatever things and press forward. No matter what they've done or what may happen, my focus is not on them anymore. I think about it and I get angry because I'm a human. Yeah. And I got human emotions. I'm facing six years because of what one individual done with the help of maybe two or three more individuals. But... If I go do six years, in my mind, back, converting back, I would speak against the Seventh-day Adventist church as people. 
I will go to services at, in prison and speak against the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But that ain't what God wants me to do. If I go back, it's going to be his will. I don't think I am. I can't see it happening. Yeah. But if I do, then I would preach or speak of being a Christian. Don't base your faith in a denomination. An institution. Because heaven's going to be filled with people who we thought was going to never be there. That's right. Mm-hmm. Amen. And the people who stand in pulpits and do all this fantastic preaching and all this, they're going to be the ones that's going to give the example to say, can I go, can he dip his finger in some water and touch me because I'm, I'm burning. Right. I mean, I think this is what, what your sister also said, that, that y'all have discovered that an institution, a denomination is not the church. And I mean, you're, I hate the story that you just told. I hate that that happened. And it's, you're not singled out. There's so many stories of folks that have been hurt and injured by people in the church. Not just our church, all churches. This is what Tim's new book about, this infection of imposed law, dictator God. It is rampant it's pervasive it's throughout all of christianity it's the only way you can end up with 34,000 different denominations all claiming that their interpretation of god or the bible is correct so thanks for everybody thanks for sharing your stories those are those are intimate stories and thanks rachel for for asking for the practical application because Again, if you've been raised with the imposed law construct, with with the penal substitution model of getting a legal payment applied to your account, to your record books, there is no expectation of change. There is no expectation of growth or victory. We're just going to be sinners until the resurrection. But this design law model, this creator designer God who has promised to transform our characters, to put us back in line with his design for our hearts, our minds, and characters. And he's promised to do it right now. He's promised to reproduce everything that Christ achieved in his life, his death, his resurrection, in our hearts and minds right now for the purpose of letting us get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like and for the purpose of us being able to be a testimony. There is no greater testimony than when your worst trait becomes your best strength. The people that knew you know that you could not have done that in and of yourself. You could not have changed that trait in and of yourself. And it, it, it's a miracle. It's, those are miracles that we see Every day in our own lives, we should be seeing if, if we claim this victory. Wow. Good discussion. So let's go to Monday. <laughs> I'm feeling very Tim-ish. <laughs> to be hitting Monday at a quarter after. Um, Discuss your very best points. Whatever you have, we want to hear them. Yeah. Okay. We'll do some highlights. This is talking about being enslaved to elementary principles. And again, this, I think, is what the Galatians were struggling with. Going back to ceremonial law and rituals and practices that we saw the Israelites replace the real thing with the symbols. If you remember, Isaiah talks to the Israelites about God hates their Sabbaths. He hates their sacrifices. He hates their rituals. Because they've become rote. They, they're not 
now pointing to the Redeemer, to the Messiah, to Christ, which is what the symbols were originally designed for, they become the sole focus, the rituals and the practices. Same with the, the leaders in Christ's day. They had the law down pat. And every time he tried to, to take them and teach them, this is what really keeping the Sabbath means, they picked up stones. They wanted to stone him. And they did eventually kill him. And they wanted him off the, cro- the cross before sundown so that they could keep the Sabbath. So they, they were totally focused on the rituals, the practices, the ceremonies, the behaviors. Good thing we're not like that today. Right. We've left that in the past. Amen. We're still very focused on the outward appearance. We're very focused on the behaviors that we can see, the acts that lead to death. We're not focused enough or at all on the motives of the heart. We can't look at the heart. We can look at our heart. Yes, Wendell. Um, I had struggled with the concept that, um, you know, you should not judge because what you're judging people about is what you have or whatever. (coughs) And um, yesterday I was in the veterinary office and I looked out onto Main Street and there was a woman walking down the middle of the street with a five-gallon white plastic bucket. And my immediate judgment was that this woman was a 'er ne'er-do-well who was under some exogenous chemical and, um, you know, was reprehensible. And yet, all of a sudden, she stopped and picked something out of the middle of the street and put it in her bucket. And again, I was somewhat judgmental. She turned around and headed toward the veterinary office, and then she came in with a, a damaged bird. Oh, and I have to say that sometimes what our judgments are reveal more about us than what I'm... Oh, yes. <laughs> Don't you think that was the purpose of Christ's instruction? He knew that. And what was exogenous? i that's an, I got to look that one up, too. I gotta... <laughs> Not naturally occurring. Isn't that true also of our judgment of God? Yes. As we judge God, we're judged. As we believe that He's testing, He has our best interest at heart, He's really trying to restore the real us the way we would have been without sin. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to take away us, take away our individuality. He's actually trying to upgrade to what we would have been. Mm -hmm. We judge Him that way, that He's trusting and healing. That is a saving out. Yes, then we open the heart. He's harsh and that he's waiting for the next shoe to drop and to, you know, get after every little thing you do. That is a distrust. That's sort of the, you know, Satan's view of God. Yes. That, that's a great analogy. All right, I'm trying to pick out some other highlights. Well, I wanted to read, again, from the remedy. If y'all don't have the remedy, you should get it. This paraphrase is life-changing. So it says reading these same verses. I don't know which verses they are. I'll have to go look. This is what's talking about the Galatians and their struggle with focusing on practices and rituals. Even though, I mean, Christ has already come. They have the real thing to experience. And they're wanting to revert back to... Again, practices and rituals trying to fit in. Again, bringing Gentiles into the Jewish culture and the Jewish ceremonial law and things like that, 
was a real struggle. So the remedy says, what I am trying to explain to you is that as long as the heir remains immature, they are really no different from a slave because they need someone to supervise their behavior, make their decisions, and guide their actions. Even though they actually own the entire estate, they don't have self-governance, so they need the guardian and trustees to protect them from their immature self until such a time as they can handle their own affairs. Likewise, when we were childlike in character and immature in our thinking, we had no self-control and were slaves to selfish impulses. But when the time was right, God intervened and sent his son, born of a sin-infected human mother as a real human baby, with a humanity weakened by the law of sin and death, in order to purify, cleanse, and purge humanity from the infection of selfishness and fear. He did this in order to heal and restore those diagnosed as terminal by the written law, so that we might receive all the blessings of sons and daughters of God. Because we are children of God, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to restore Christ-likeness of character, so that we genuinely call out to God, Daddy, Father, rejoice, you are no longer childlike, needing the supervision of a slave, but are adult children, wise and mature, and as mature children, heirs with Christ of all that is promised. So, what does it mean when that text says that Christ came, he was born of a woman under law? What do we think it means now versus before? Is this he's born under the Ten Commandments? Design law. Yes. Thank you. He was born of a sinful mother. He was born with his DNA infected, just like we are. But his father was God, so he was perfect. So in this single human being of Jesus Christ, these two warring factions, the only two groups that are going to exist in the end, those infected and those who've been healed, we're together in this one person, which gave him the unique ability to rot out this perfect character, to perfectly purge that sin and selfishness and fear that infected his DNA from birth. He was able to purge that completely out of his system and create a perfect character in his person human. Yes, Rachel. And that same miracle is when we receive the Holy Spirit, yes. the of godliness, then we too may be the union of human and divine. It's a wonderful... Yes. And this is really what we're heirs to. We are heirs to everything Christ achieved. He said, it is good that I go so that I can send my spirit. The spirit will speak only what he hears from me. The Spirit is our, is our pathway to have everything Christ achieved in his life, death, and resurrection reproduced in us. Yes. In the last paragraph on Tuesday's lesson, yes. in the middle of the paragraph, it says, Christ legally became qualified to be our substitute. Is that what our church actually believes? I'm afraid that it is. That bothers me, and, and I just it should, and it should. So did did he really need 
a legal means to become our substitute? It's just legal. Anybody could have done it. Let, let me go. We're a little late, but I'm going to go. This last paragraph on Tuesday's lesson, I found it interesting. And I mean, I almost felt, I don't know how many of you studied the lesson. Obviously, you did and saw this paragraph. I thought I was witnessing an internal struggle in the author or between the author and the editor of a bent toward healing design model concepts and a, versus the penal substitution concepts. So let me just go through the paragraph and, and pull out some, some comments. So it says, quote, it was necessary for Christ to assume our humanity because we could not save ourselves. Yes. 100% true. By uniting his divine nature with our fallen human nature, Christ legally qualified to be our substitute savior and high priest. Did he really need legal qualifications? And would legal qualifications in and of themselves have equipped him to be our savior? When you make the wrong diagnosis, you get the wrong treatment. That's exactly right. Back to the quote, as the second Adam, he came to reclaim all that the first Adam had lost by his disobedience. Not totally disagreeing with that, I might would reword that last phrase from disobedience to by his distrust and by the damage he did to his heart, mind, and character. Because disobedience implies focus on behavior alone. Back to the quote, by his obedience, he perfectly fulfilled the law's demands, thus redeeming Adam's tragic failure. Yes. Which law? Right. What are the law's demands, and how did he perfectly fulfill it? I'm going to read one of our class's favorite quotes from the Desire of Ages. The law requires... Righteousness. Righteousness. A perfect character. Why? Why does the law of respiration require that we breathe? Because that's how we were designed. It's how life was designed to operate. That's why the law requires righteousness. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. What is maybe the only thing God cannot create? Character. It has to be wrought out. It has to be developed, refined, and perfected through the exercise of your free will. So although Christ was created sinless, he had to mature and develop his perfect character in order to procure the remedy for our condition. God does create that, creating me a clean heart, oh God. Yes, I cooperate with that, but it is God's, I am God's new creation. With our cooperation. Him creating character without our cooperation creates robots or automatons. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive him. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the legal, no, through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are just so grateful for the links that you have gone to, to redeem us, to heal us, to restore us back to what you saw as your perfect design. We're so grateful for the evidence that you have given us so that we do not 
have to have a blind faith. Father, let us, let our relationship with your law change as our relationship with the lawgiver changes. Please continue to reveal your character, to reveal yourself to us, so that we can continue to grow and learn and be transformed into your likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.